brag. We're the best kind of snitch on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right on past them without even talking. When the star-bellied children went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? Not at all. You only could play if your bellies had stars and the plain-bellied children had none upon bars. When the star-bellied sneeches had frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the plain-bellied sneeches. They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away, never let them come near. And that's how they treated them year after year. Matt Woodley writes um, that throughout Matthew's very Jewish gospel, uh, we've seen hints. The foreign women in the genealogy in chapter 1, the appearance of the Magi in chapter 2, John the Baptist move away from the temple in chapter 3, the the healing of the centurion's servant in chapter 8, the abolition of the dietary laws in chapter 15, which we just saw last week. We've seen hints that Jesus' kingdom will reflect his diverse creation, that it's big enough for the nations. And Jesus, in our passage today, is about to have a series of encounters that are tipping points in what was the great exclusion, the great separation between people in Jesus' day, and that was between Jews and Gentiles. And so if you'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 21, I'll pray and we'll, we'll dig into this. Father, have mercy on us. Help us see ourselves in light of your word. May your spirit um, be welcomed by each one of us to apply it skillfully to our lives. We ask this for your name's sake and for our greatest joy. And we do this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you remember last week, the early part of 15, Jesus has just been in one of those significant debates with the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders. And that's where we find him today. It says Jesus went away from there, from that debate, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Um, This withdrawal likely reflects Jesus pulling back from this escalating conflict. Um, It's a conflict that had led to plots against Jesus' life. You remember just a couple pages back in your Bible, chapter 12, the Pharisees, they went out and they conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. So they were at the level of trying to figure out how to kill Jesus in this conflict. And we're often given glimpses of Jesus um, pulling back the reins on the unfolding of the agenda that would lead to his death and resurrection. Uh, For example, in Mark chapter 7, as uh, we start um, this passage today, well, let me first cite a couple from John. Jesus repeatedly in John uses this phrase, my hour has not yet come. He'll say that on multiple occasions. 
Not yet, my hour has not yet come. When Mark tells this story that we're telling, he says, from there, from the conflicts with the Pharisees, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. Um, Just as Jesus can be driven into hiding by unbelief, so too he can be drawn out by great faith. And that's what we're going to see in the principal story we're looking at today. This, these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, they, they have been called pagan land, okay? non-Jewish territory. Um, it, is, it is the beach of Sneetches with no stars. Okay? These were the people who were excluded, as it were. And Jesus has come there for this very important encounter that we're going to look at now. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Right away we learn several important things about this woman. First, just that. She's a woman. And as such... A pagan woman would not approach a Jewish rabbi in public like this. It just wasn't done. It it wasn't socially acceptable for a woman to approach a man like this. Now, we also learn that she is a Canaanite woman. Most of you remember that language. You've heard that language. We studied the book of Deuteronomy last year. You remember Canaan. The land of Canaan was the promised land. And the Canaanites were the ancient enemies of Israel, of God's people. They occupied that promised land. They had to be driven out before God's people could dwell in the land that he had promised them. So this makes her an even less likely candidate for Jesus to be responsive to her cry for mercy. She was indeed an outcast sneech on the outer limits of Gentile life. We also learn that she's a mom, a mom of a little daughter, Mark tells us in his account. And that little girl was being severely oppressed, cruelly afflicted. One writer said she was being tortured by demons. Let me just make one little side note here. If, if you are in a scenario where you've been, ever been tempted to dabble in the dark arts, okay? just make note of this. Remember this. They torture little girls. Okay? They torture little girls. And that should be warning enough. Don't go there. We also know about her, though, one last thing. We know she's a woman of faith who believes that Jesus is, in her own words, the son of David, a very Jewish messianic title for a pagan woman to use. It's a remarkable confession on her part. Now, this is, of course, you can see it coming. This is one of those underdog scenarios that Jesus loves, right? And you know exactly how this is going to turn out. 
Let's watch the next verse. He did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. She's crying out after us. The first thing Jesus does with this woman who comes to him in her suffering is that he ignores her. He does not answer her even a word. That's not at all what we would expect from Jesus. To ignore her? Was he too busy? Was he, was he responding to her socially inappropriate approach? We aren't told why at this point. The focus is on her. How will she respond? What will she do? And it appears that she approaches the disciples. Crying out loudly, begging them to help her little daughter. And she persists in this, evidently for quite a while, long enough to exhaust the disciples' patience. And they come to Jesus and they say, send her away. She's after us now. Okay. Now the meaning could just be that. Jesus, get rid of her. Um, or it could mean, get rid of her by addressing her need. By healing her daughter. Um, either way, it doesn't cast a very compassionate hue on the disciples. They want this woman gone because she's bothering them. But if that's the case, if they're saying, just grant her her request so she'll leave us alone, Jesus now explains why he hasn't done that yet, why he didn't respond to her, please. In the next verse, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's telling the disciples this. And so now, in addition to ignoring her, now it seems as though Jesus is excluding her. His focus is elsewhere. He reminds the disciples that his target group's another people. His strategic plan doesn't include her or her people. At least at this time it doesn't. Now this is an oft-stated priority in Jesus' ministry and the broader New Testament. You know, the idea is to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Gentiles are just non-Jews. Another way it's rendered in your Bibles is the nations. Other, other folk than outside of the Jewish race. You know, Jesus... Actually, when he sent out the disciples back a couple pages in chapter 10, you remember what he said? It's 12 disciples Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Same priorities with the disciples. Um, the apostle Paul famously says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or to the Gentiles. So having been so excluded, you would think maybe she would give up. Hardly. Jesus says, I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, Jesus' response again is surprisingly harsh. He puts her down on the lowest rungs of the ladder with his answer, where he says in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
Jesus compares her to a dog. This is how the Jews referred to the Gentiles. Gentile dogs. Um, now, if you read on this sort of thing, there's a, it's, a, it's a diminutive kind of statement. It's a little dog. It's not a stray wild dog out in the streets. It might be a household dog, maybe a pet. But regardless of that, being called a dog in comparison to a child is hardly an exalting compliment. Jesus is telling her she's the worst kind of snitch, it seems. So before we can watch how this story plays out, there is this giant elephant in the room that we need to address at some point. What in the world is Jesus doing? It's not made explicitly clear, but there are at least three options. First option, Jesus is rude, racist, and sexist, and this woman is helping him break out of his patterns. Um, Alan Ross uh, responds to this helpfully. He says, one scholar suggested that Jesus had been a racist and this woman converted him from that narrow view. He says, that is just silly. If he had been a Jewish racist and therefore a sinner, he would not have come to Tyre and Sidon in the first place. Okay. He never would have been there. That is just silly. Second option, um, Jesus is sorting out the Father's timing and plan. And this woman's faith will help him do that. Um, Dale Bruner proposes this. I doubt it. Um, while there are times when Jesus seems unaware of the timings of things. Remember he says, I don't know the day or the hour of my return. Um, in this case, the text doesn't assign that struggle to Jesus explicitly. It doesn't say that he's struggling with that. And I'm reluctant to paint Jesus as unknowing when the writer of the text does not. But having said that, surely... Just as Jesus withdraws from unbelief and oppression, which he does, he, he can be drawn out by great faith. Unwavering faith can draw him into full engagement. And I think that really points to the third option that best explains what's going on here. Jesus is drawing out the woman's faith to its fullest extent with his silence, with his exclusion, with his humiliation, his humbling of her. He is drawing extraordinary faith out of this woman. And it is for her benefit that he is doing this, for sure. And Jesus has done this. He's used this approach on other occasions. Uh, maybe you remember, I think it's a father who seeks Jesus out healing his son, and he says, says to Jesus, if you can, cast the demon out of, this, of my son. And so Jesus stops him and says, if I can? And there's a little lecture on faith that happens in order to draw faith more fully out of his father. Um, there's another scenario where a father tells him his daughter's dying, and Jesus delays dealing with other people on the way until the daughter has died. And then Jesus will raise her from the dead. Lazarus 
Jesus very intentionally delays until Lazarus is dead, and then he goes and raises him from the dead. The delay is for the purpose of drawing out great faith. I think that's what he's doing here. He's drawing out the fullness of her faith. And it is for her good, but the story, the picture, is bigger than that. It's also for his disciples who are watching. It's for you and me who are watching. It's for the nations that she represents. That's why her faith is stretched here and put on full display for us all to see what it means to trust when God is silent or when we have to wait or when his words are not what we'd hope to hear. So that third option really centrally is the best one. Jesus is drawing out her faith. So let's look at her remarkable faith that has drawn Jesus out, and Jesus is drawing out of her so that we can see it and emulate it. Starting in verse 25, she came, knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now that's faith, okay? That is great faith. Let's walk through and see what we see. Just about, let's just kind of dissect this faith. And the first thing that, that you'll see is that this is a faith driven by desperation, She's desperate. She has no delusions of self-sufficiency. This is her only hope for her daughter. She's nowhere else to go. Her daughter's suffering has brought her here, and she cries out loudly, begging, kneeling, pleading. Dale Bruner says, faith is holding on to Jesus for dear life, like a drowning person to a life raft, believing that Jesus is good even when his words seem not to be. That's the kind of desperate faith we see here. Second thing is that she is really daring. As we've noted, it's not acceptable for a pagan woman to approach a Jewish rabbi in this fashion, but she would take the risk. She would risk rejection. Her desperate need and her faith in Jesus' power and goodness would cause her to dare to cry out to him over and over again. No social custom Nothing anyone could say or think would keep her from hoping in Jesus. And then probably the the biggest ones are she's persevering. She will not be deterred, not by Jesus' silence, not by his apparent rejection of her request, not by his weightlisting her claim to his healing mercy. None of these things hinders her. She is unwavering in her faith in Jesus' power and goodness. Bruner says, faith is refusing to believe the Lord can be bad to faith. He says, another discouragement overcome by the woman is the discouragement of the hostile disciples. 
As we well know, the church can turn people away as well as attract them, but great faith refuses to let even the church or disciples be the last word. The last word is Jesus alone. Faith in Jesus is not faith in Jesus' disciples. Christians are not God. He says we believe in the communion of saints, not in the deity of saints. She is remarkably persevering. She will not be deterred. She will not stop until her request is granted. She just perseveres. And lastly, she's remarkably humble. She accepts without question Jesus placing her amongst the dogs. She's not offended. She knows it's true. In terms of priority, the gospel comes to the Jew first and then to the nations. She knows she's not there with any merit on her own, but she believes that even grace that comes to the second string would be more than enough for her and her daughter. She believes the grace and mercy of Jesus is that good that the crumbs will be enough. He's that powerful. So what about you when you find yourself in her place? What about when you pray and Jesus responds with apparent silence? How do you deal with that? Will you keep on asking? Will you keep on praying when God is silent? What about when you bring your deepest needs, your greatest sufferings, and you must wait for a grace that's yet future? Will you still believe? Will you still hope? Will you still pray? What about when God does not honor you as you think he should? You've been faithful. You've served long and hard. And God blesses someone else first. Someone who doesn't deserve as much as you do. Will you trust that his grace will be sufficient enough for them and for you? Some of you today might be in that place, a place of silence, a place of waiting, a place of being humbled. I want you to be encouraged by her story. Okay? Her story is written here for you. Be encouraged by how she perseveres in faith. Persevering in faith, in prayer especially, is one of the great demonstrations of faith. So will you persevere? Will you be humble and not let your pride make you give up and walk away and take matters into your own hands? Be encouraged by her example. Be encouraged by how her story turns out. Okay? Her daughter, her little daughter, is healed instantly. And one of the things that becomes apparent, should be apparent to us all, is that we all even by North Wake standards, we all dress up nice on Sunday morning and look pretty good. But there's some folk who are carrying some heavy stuff when they come here. And um, it would be good to enter this room uh, with a mindset of uh, that God may want you to, to bear in prayerful encouragement to someone sitting near you. You may not even know. But maybe when you sit here on Sunday, you might be mindful of God prompting you to pray for someone near you. And you might see an old friend and say, how you're doing? And, and then uh, be prepared to, to deal with what they say. And 
If you're bearing the burden, you, if someone asks you that, you can say, you know, I need you to pray for me, and that's okay. It's okay. You can do that in church. Okay? It's okay. Well, Jesus is not done doing amazing things in this passage, and I want to briefly walk us through some things that will lead us to this table in just a moment. It's fascinating to bump this passage up with what just happened earlier, where, where the Pharisees and the scribes were so rejecting Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. They say he's of the devil. And this little Canaanite woman holds out faithfully, humbly, waiting and hoping for that which the Jewish leaders had no use She's a lot like the centurion we studied a number of weeks ago. You remember in Matthew 8, remember his story? When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to Jesus, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Such faith. It's only in these two incidents does Jesus remark about anyone's great faith, and they're both Gentiles. They're both from the nations. So this woman, Faith, opens up in the Gospel of Matthew and in the ministry of Jesus a remarkable stretch of ministry to non-Jews, to the nations, to the, to the sneetches without stars. Okay? Watch what happens next. Um, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up to the mountain and he sat down there and great crowds came to him bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And all this language brings to mind the great pointers towards the Messiah that God gave to the prophet Isaiah some 500 years earlier. They read like this, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? It's, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah, but one thing stands out in our story that's a bit different. He's doing this in Gentile country. He's doing it amongst the pagans, amongst the nations. And it's interesting what they say at the very end of all of that. They glorified these Canaanites, these pagans. They glorified the God of Israel. The pagans, the Canaanites... They glorify the God of Israel. But Jesus is not done making his point yet. So he calls his disciples to him and he says, 
I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And at this time it has to be sounding really familiar to the disciples. They said seven and a few small fish and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And if you've, been, if you've been sitting in on this study with us, it's the feeding of the 5,000 all over again. I mean, the language is almost the same, only it's 4,000 this time instead of five. And significantly, it's among the Gentiles this time. It's among the nations. See, Jesus is doing a symbolic act that anticipates the great heavenly banquet in the book of Revelation where Jesus sets a table for all who believe. And now, he's feeding the nations. And the nations are eating. And they are satisfied. This is good news for sneeches. Okay? And, you know, maybe that's why the disciples couldn't see it coming. Okay? They couldn't imagine a grace that wide, a mercy that all-encompassing, that star bellies and non-star bellies could both be in the kingdom. And then again, maybe they were just slow to believe like you and me. I mean, how many times has God rescued us and we still fret and worry and doubt and wonder if we can trust Him with that again? But Jesus has compassion on these crowds and He feeds them. As we talked before, we should too. You know, that feed pantry over there in building two, it should be overflowing because we follow Jesus and Jesus cares for those who have needs, those who are hungry. Jesus feeds the hungry, so should we. Now, from where we sit, though, from our vantage point in history, we can see things the disciples surely could not. Okay? So when we hear Matthew say, both at the feeding of the 5,000 and hear again that Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, that should sound eerily familiar to you. We fast forward to Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And at this great feast that Jesus is giving, we're reminded of this table, okay? of the Lord's table, we call it, a table we celebrate until he comes back and until we sit at the next great table, the table of the Lord in Revelation. This is a table of remembrance. We remember his death and his resurrection for us. We remember how wide and how long and how high and 
how deep is the love of Christ for all of us. And we are the Gentiles. We are the nations that he so loved that he would bring this feast to us. And so we together today come to the table as God's people, undeserving, but welcomed by the good work of Jesus on the cross. And we remember that on the day in which he was betrayed, that night Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, it's broken for you. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this, this is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me.